0: Welcome to Rising. We have another scrum show planned for you today. I promised one of our uh, directors, our producers, I would say that this morning. Brianna, what's going on?
1: Well, Robbie, the Respect for Marriage Act has passed the Senate with a filibuster proof majority vote of 61 to 36. The bill will, f- will first be sent to the House, where they are expected to approve and send it to President Biden. We'll continue to keep an eye on that as it develops. Meanwhile, new this morning, more shocking admissions in the fallout from FTX's collapse. In a newly published interview with YouTuber Tiffany Fong, disgraced FTX founder Sam Bankman Fried claimed he used a dark money loophole in Citizens United to secretly donate millions of dollars to Republicans. Let's listen to that admission.
2: I donated to both parties. I donated about the same amount to both parties this year. That was not generally known because despite Citizens United being literally the highest profile Supreme Court case of the decade and the thing everyone talks about when they talk about campaign finance. For some reason, in practice, no one can possibly fathom the idea that someone in practice actually gave dark. So, I don't know, all my Republican donations were dark. Uh, um, and the reason was not for regulatory reasons. It's because reporters freak the fuck out if you donate to a Republican. They're all super liberal and didn't want to have that fight so i just made all the republican ones dark um but I was, what, or second or third biggest republican donor this year as well well it's all for the primary they didn't give anything general options don't give a shit about general elections. it's not what matters like it's the primaries where the where you put candidates against bad candidates
0: Now, this new claim comes just after Bankman-Fried told Fox that he used his firm Alameda Research to wire customers' deposits, adding another level of collusion between the failed crypto exchange and its sister company. Meanwhile, over at the now-also-defunct BlockFi, lawyers say the company will seek some $680 million from Alameda after claiming the trading firm defaulted on certain collateralized loans. So, interesting. So, he did give a lot of money, he says, he claims—and this hasn't necessarily been vetted. We don't know. We'll probably find out during the course of the criminal investigation into what's going on. But very well might be the case. We, we do know that he gave at least a million to a, a Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. fund very late in the game. So, I, no reason not to believe that he also gave significantly to Republicans. I think that is pretty interesting that—so, uh, he wanted to give a lot of money to both parties, but— wants to give to Republicans secretly because the, the, pre, the media reaction from giving to Republicans is so much worse than the media reaction from giving to Democrats. Yeah. Even though he's trying to achieve—the the goals of, those, of that spending, from his point—standpoint— uh, are the same, is to, you know, whatever, structure the crypto regime in a favorable way to him.
1: Yeah, because I'm sorry, (laughs) I feel like a broken record. How many radars have I done where I've made this exact point, where I've shown someone's open secrets and and said that one of these companies that's being characterized as, like, uh, you know, super woke or liberal, whether it's Disney or one of these tech companies, equally gives to both parties? they know they cannot determine like what he was saying about the primaries is what really matters they can't determine the out- outcome of these elections but they can make sure that regardless of who wins on either side of the aisle it's stacked in their favor that's the whole game. Yeah. That's what both parties have been playing. It's really not about left-right. It's about top-down. And it is is—it is a, a useful admission that he's willing to say it out loud. But I don't know, Robbie, what do you think this means for the discourse around Sam Bankman Freed, where I think a lot of conservatives, rightly, um, but in a, in a way that's a little bit partisan, have been trying to attach Sam Bankman fried to the Democrats mm-hmm. in particular?
0: Yeah, I think that part of it was overhyped, and should be careful about it, because clearly he was also spending on sympathetic politicians of both— in both parties, um, the, then now his media spending is is very interesting and uh, part of his agenda of trying to buy media loyalty or friendliness in general, which totally worked, yeah, completely worked. If yeah. you look at the the glorifying coverage of someone who seems. Sociopathic? Um, He keeps talking. I mean, this is a giveaway. He keeps sharing his master plan (laughs) in in the way, like, the villain does when he's about to drop you into lava, like, giving you just enough
1: time to escape from the lava and turn the tables on him. Like, that's what he's doing. The irony is that, I mean, liberals eat this stuff up in particular, I think. They're really invested in the idea that all the problems in the world can be solved by someone who just has a big enough brain, who's worked at McKinsey for Mm -hmm. enough years. They really fetishize technocratic solutions. And so Sam Bankman-Fried is, in some ways, the perfect avenue. Avatar for the liberal media to latch onto in this way, but I don't know how many times folks like this have to come along and then dramatically disappoint you with the way that Elizabeth Holmes and a million others have, before folks learn their lesson. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. They, just,
0: they ate up exactly what he was serving.
1: Yeah, even, he's not even. I mean, watching now how the media has turned on Mark Zuckerberg has been interesting because he was in the exact same position. Mm-hmm. And when people were talking about him as the media has turned case, on Mark
0: Zuckerberg, almost to, in fact to a much greater degree than I think he deserves. You know, personal blame for Donald because Trump of the Russia, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: fair, fair enough. But it's not like he, you know, was very charismatic and mm-hmm. had a personality and all this charm and wisdom before and suddenly fell off and just became robotic and kind of like uh, waxy, mm-hmm. the way that people characterize him now. He was always that way, but it just really goes to show you how much all of this is such a media
0: creation. Mm-hmm. And these people hold on to their creations long <laughs> past the point at which they're <laughs> profitable. Can you... Zuckerberg could have sold out at the height of Facebook.
1: Well, he's still, look, he's doing fine. Obviously, he doesn't I... care that we're sitting in well, and making fun of him. he's lost.
0: His wealth has dipped because of Facebook's. Um, I, Facebook could go to zero in the long run, and he really wish he'd sold. And, Mar- in and 20... Mark, well, Mark Zuckerberg will be fine. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not shedding tears for him. I'm, I'm trying to explain the the kind of um, the. This goes to what you're talking about the sort of faith in technocracy and the, these great men, and that they'll get through. They'll put all the pieces together, and they'll make it work, and they'll fix it. And let me ask you this, you can't, Oh, what, jumpstart a, fl- a flailing social media company.
1: Well, it, it does seem like, so. well, they also, they own so many other companies that aren't flailing, yeah. like Instagram and stuff isn't going, on. but well, but let me, let me ask well, you I'm about wrong. this. Will. Um, it, how, what do you, it seems to me, from my perspective, that so much of the um, crypto world hinges on exactly this kind of fetishization of great. Computer mm-hmm. geniusy types of minds, and that they've just figured out something that the rest of the world the world hasn't figured out. It has this like independent maverick rogue streak, et cetera. What do you think that this crisis has in terms of an effect on people's willingness to invest? Do you think there's going to be a long-term tail on people's faith in crypto generally speaking? or do you think it's going to be considered a bit more isolated incident?
0: Um, I, I don't know. This might very well erode um, the, the emerging trust in crypto, or it might uh, cause the discourse to be, well, we need a lot more regulation of crypto or something like that. All those things could be the case. You know, we had on my colleague at Reason, Zach Weissmuller, yesterday, who, who is trying to make the make the case, or his argument is that Sam Bankman-Fried was sort of an outlier in terms of his crypto approach. Mm-hmm. His approach was more like your traditional or the, uh, the, the, the people— um, who have brought collapse to financial sector, who are part of, like, the traditional money-making sectors, and that the rest of crypto is about being— is about the technology and about being accountable to each other and to the technology and is not about these—like, a charismatic individual who's promising to do good and then ends up being evil.
1: Yeah, I took his point about, you know, cryptocurrency as uh, as, like, a medium. That's one thing, but these exchanges um, that are vulnerable to exploitation, like in the way that we saw here, that seems to me to be completely, because there is no regulation, dependent on trusting these kinds of figures. And I don't, well, don't trust these kinds of figures.
0: Don't trust them. Don't buy into scams. Don't buy a timeshare. Don't do these things. Yeah. Yeah, invest your money carefully maybe a little bit for fun like you'd go to the casino don't bet the house don't do that. don't be like our, our former I saw our former uh, host of this show uh, Sagar oh, yeah, uh, admitted that he lost a significant amount of money I think in uh, BlockFi.
1: yeah so. I'll, I'll keep my money in the mattress for now
0: same same bury it <laughs> out in the back I don't have a backyard but that's where I would bury it if I if I had it uh, looking forward to your radar Brianna that'll be next stay with us. Brianna, what's on your radar?
1: Well, Robbie, as we all know, long before Elon Musk, Twitter had a problem. Its content moderation policies were consistent, inconsistently applied. Users found themselves banned for political statements, while harassment that seemed to violate the company's own rules often went unnoticed. And bot swarms paid for backed by establishment camps supporting people like Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris made the experience miserable for many people on the left and right. Most glaringly, however, the platform's choice to block the Hunter Biden laptop story made it clear that politics, as much as principle, were guiding the decisions made at Twitter HQ. That mistake joined a list of other grievances relating to free speech concerns. Was the American left indifferent to Assange's persecution because he was perceived as being anti-Hillary? Was the liberal media putting the thumb on the scale against Trump in 2016, where statements about COVID that turned out to be false only deemed misinformation when they came out of the mouths of conservatives or independents? So when Elon Musk, who positioned himself as a free thinker and First Amendment advocate, announced his plan to purchase Twitter, many people who were concerned about censorship were excited to see what he might do to improve the app. Though I had my doubts, I hope for the best. Certainly something needed to change. Regretfully, at this time, Musk seems not to have addressed the problem at the core of Twitter's speech policies, its inconsistency. While some folks have celebrated that Donald Trump, Kanye West, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Jordan Peterson have been let back onto the app, over the weekend, a number of independent journalists were banned from the app with little to no notice from liberals or conservative free speech advocates. Musk's decision not to reinstate Alex Jones was, by his own admission, based on the fact that Musk had tragically lost a child himself and therefore found Jones's Sandy Hook trutherism to be beyond the pale. Is that a reliable standard for content moderation? What offends Musk? He lost a child, so Jones can't come back. But, well, if Musk were trans, would Pearson be out? If he were Jewish, would Ye still be off the app? When not relying on his own personal feelings, Musk has repeatedly turned to Twitter's poll feature to get the public to weigh in on his leadership decisions. For example, when reinstating Trump. And while Twitter polls certainly have a certain democratic appeal, they don't do much to resolve one of the core problems with the platform. Before Musk, users had very little certainty about what they could and could not do on the app. Violent threats were technically prohibited against trans people, but community members regularly complained that that rule wasn't enforced. Meanwhile, it seemed acceptable to wish death on people of Russian heritage, for instance, because war, I guess. COVID misinformation was scrutinized closely, but hate speech policy was inconsistently enforced. Whatever you think about what the rules should be, what should have been in place, it was next to impossible to know what would be enforced, at least until it was too late. And Musk's choice to make case-by-case decisions based on Twitter polls and his personal experiences does little to resolve those inconsistencies. Even if you agree with how Musk has handled these particular instances, is the goal here to create fair, equitable, consistent policies to support free speech? Or is it to advance one's own political agenda at any cost to pick a benevolent ideologue you happen to agree with this time? How is that any better Than the status quo that came before. As I explained in a radar months ago, when Musk was first hinting that he might buy Twitter, there have always been indications that Musk might not be the most consistent vanguard of genuinely important free speech interests. For example, the National Labor Relations Board fined Musk for a tweet in which he unlawfully threatened employees with loss of stock options if they chose to unionize. And now, As advertisers are exercising their First Amendment rights to spend money and contract where they please, withdrawing ad dollars from Twitter, Musk is characterizing that decision as a violation of his free speech, as though people spending money on his companies is a constitutionally enshrined entitlement. Now, that's obviously wrong. To be clear, I do think that some of the corporate practices used to punish people like Musk and Ye West for making various controversial or bigoted comments are overly punitive and too coercive, even if I disagree with those men's politics. J.P. Morgan suspending Ye West's accounts, bank accounts implicates a much more fundamental right than simply using, losing an Adidas contract. Banking services seem worryingly closed to a common carrier service or utilities, basic essential infrastructure without which life becomes quite difficult. And I worry about the coercive effect of taking away people's ability to access those types of basic services. But Yay can't force Adidas to want to work with him without infringing on their freedom of association. Nor can Musk demand Apple's Tim Cook continue in his role as Twitter's biggest source of advertising money. This seems obvious, and yet the genuinely fundamental and sacred issue of free speech is being attached to these causes that basically amount to dudes doing bad at capitalism. Importantly, we're missing the forest for the trees. A video journalist who reports on far-right protests has been suspended from Twitter, as have several anti-fascist researchers and activists. Even worse... There's evidence that Musk is directing these decisions, not based on popular polls, but at the behest of his personal blue check acquaintances. Four accounts that have been suspended were singled out by far right writer Andy No in a public Twitter exchange with Musk. Musk told Ngo to quote, report Antifa accounts that he thought should be suspended directly to him. And before you write these people off as some cringe libs who probably deserve to be booted off the app. Note that one of the blocked accounts was a critic of Twitter's Hunter Biden laptop story ban before the 2020 election, someone who probably hoped Musk would really improve things, not target him. Another is a member of a gun club named for abolitionist John Brown. The club spent its time exercising its Second Amendment rights to protect LGBTQIA events from armed far-right protesters. Is banning these people really making America more free? The problem of conservative elites weaponizing legitimate concerns about free speech extends well beyond Twitter. As I've talked about uh, on one of these radars, Alabama is making it illegal to support the boycott, divest, and sanction movement in support of Palestinian rights if you want a government contract. Parents of trans kids are being directed on how to parent their children by the state. There have been book bans in 32 states. Julian Assange wastes away in prison. Mega media corporations have decimated local stations, resulting in an immediate drop in content. And right now, Joe Biden is using the power of the state to crush a labor action where the demand is merely some paid vacation days. Railroad workers are trying to exercise their right to collectively bargain and potentially strike, a type of activity which conservative courts have already held to be political speech and thus protected. Left free speech advocates like Glenn Greenwald have consistently called this kind of activity out. Imagine how powerful it would be if there were as much energy to defend these real workers as there is to reinstate podcasters after a Twitter ban. Now, I'm not saying that the Twitter bans don't matter. Podcasters' lives matter. But the lack of consistency here is worrying. There are so many speech issues we should be focused on, including really and truly improving Twitter. But so many of them are being subsumed into spat about the mundane. It's worth asking ourselves if the free speech advocates who take up so much of the oxygen are actually fighting to protect the marginalized or merely weaponizing a real issue to boost their own elite interests. Hmm. So, yeah, Robbie, the, the particular exchange between Andy Ngo and Elon Musk where no seemed to be saying, hey, I don't like these accounts, I don't like these Antifa people, they shouldn't be here. And then consequently, they were banned from the app. At the same time, there was all of this noise about celebrating people getting back onto the app. It seemed to be a distraction from all the people who were continuing to be railroaded off. And I'm not even crit- critiquing, really, the choice right now to bring people back on. But are we missing the forest for the trees here?
0: Yeah, look, we're definitely going to need to move away from moderation by random Elon Musk fiat declaration. Like, that's not—I don't understand how that's sustainable for him. Right. It sounds like this is— absorbing all of his attention and energy. I mean, he's tweeting constantly. He's responding to people constantly. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is a busy man. He's trying to launch a colony on Mars. <laughs> like, he has more important things to do than to uh, bring back Jordan Peterson, um, who, whatever, maybe he shouldn't have been banned in the first place. I don't know. I, I've I, Certainly you can argue. See, this is the problem with content moderation. The rules are always going to be vague enough. People will always be dissatisfied because there will always be examples. And also some of it is done by... Often things are flagged and then moderation is taken. So, so many times you can say, Well, why was this taken down when this wasn't taken down, even though this violates the rules much more clearly than this does? Be like, Well, nobody complained about that. Nobody reported that. Nobody saw that.
1: And the issue is with Elon being so online, if having a blue check and being followed by Elon and having access to Elon's DMs mean the people that you flag get kicked off the app, basically he's deputizing all of these. Um, tyrannical knights to be running around twitter doing doing things that happen to align with his own personal right. politics which should not be the point of twitter and wasn't the point yeah. of him intervening to try to protect the free speech free speech interests of the people on the app of
0: course this was i'm sure conservatives would point out this was the case before elon took over and, <laughs> it was and that, it was and there was, was a, a, problem a too. <laughs> right there was the trust and safety board yeah. of people just constantly yeah. snitch tagging by mainstream media or progressive media figures saying why has you know Excuse me. Support safety. Why hasn't somebody taken issue against someone using a dead name or someone doing what saying something offensive? And then, oh, sorry, we'll get right on that. We don't want to, you know, risk um, the the wrath of the media. Uh, so they'll then they would take it. Like that's that was the reality. Now it's the shoes on the other foot. Right. And I think uh, I think. People are finding out why that was not so great.
1: Right. But once we get past the haha, told you so stage yeah. of this, like I, I didn't, be- I personally didn't benefit under either regime. No, <laughs> did no neither, I? Did I. So neither
3: did I. So the,
1: the, the point of the matter, it shouldn't be everyone just being okay with something because they do or d- do not personally benefit. If you make consistent rules, there are going to be times when you feel like those rules don't serve you. But, uh, you know, I, I someone said once, you know, it's a good negotiation if everybody feels screwed at the end. Mm-hmm. And I think we've gone from a regime where, a lot of people felt like the Twitter leadership was on their side in advancing a more liberal agenda, and now people feel like it's on their side in an advancing more conservative agenda. And they just need to figure out a content-neutral policy and figure out also how to apply it consistently. And people on both sides are going to have to get comfortable with the idea that some of the outcomes are not to their taste.
0: Funny enough, I don't think the result of bringing back these very kind of extreme or provocative right-wing figures— is going—does serve Elon Musk's ultimate goal of apparently well, electing Republicans. He said he wants oh, to elect yeah. Republicans. Yeah. But the, the more you remind sort of the, the people in the middle—the people whose votes are up for grabs of the crazy elements of the right, the more they run screaming back to Democrats is what yeah. we've learned. Well, so. it's also
1: not helping his bottom line with uh, Apple being his biggest um, yeah, advertiser. Yeah, I think we're going to
0: talk about that a little bit in another segment in the show. We'll have more rising right after this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis blasted Apple for allegedly threatening to take Twitter off of the App Store. He went a step further and said that Congress should take action if, in fact, Apple goes through with this alleged threat. Here's DeSantis speaking at a press conference on Tuesday.
4: When you also hear reports that Apple is threatening to remove Twitter from the App Store because Elon Musk is actually opening it up for free speech and is restoring a lot of accounts that were uh, unfairly and illegitimately suspended for putting out accurate information about COVID. That's like one of the main things that's being reinstated. So many things these experts were wrong at and you had people on Twitter that were calling that out and Twitter, the old regime in Twitter, their response was to try to just suffocate the dissent. And, And Elon Musk knows that's not a winning formula and so he's, uh, providing free speech. And so if Apple responds to that uh, by nuking them from, from the app store, you know, I think that that would be a huge, huge mistake, and it would be a really raw exercise of monopolistic power that I think would merit a response uh, from, from the United States Congress.
1: Desantis's comments come after Elon Musk claimed on Monday that Apple allegedly made the threat, The tech giant is Twitter's biggest advertiser, and if true, Apple's move could deal a serious blow to the social media's revenue. Apple has yet to respond to Musk's comments. Yeah,
0: so to be clear, we don't know that Apple is contemplating doing this at all. Right, I suspect we, yeah. they're not. I can't imagine them actually taking Twitter out of the App Store. So a lot of this is much ado about nothing. Uh, Musk is yeah. mad about the, them leaving as an advertiser, which he has every right to be mad about, but they have every right to do, and it's not really a free speech issue because they are not obligated <laughs> to advertise on the I, I, I agree that kicking them out of the App Store would be a pretty severe move. Um, I don't think they're going to do that. I also don't think it would necessarily call for the intervention of the federal government unlike I guess many conservatives now who think the federal government should intervene in these <laughs> kinds of things and Ron DeSantis Ron DeSantis doesn't sound totally like he actually believes what he's saying there so maybe he's just telling yeah, conservatives I mean, what they it, want to hear but it, it, this does not it would not benefit yeah. I've been saying this long it would not benefit I don't see how it would help conservative speech online to give the federal government like more power to punish these companies for speech, which was the whole problem in the first place. He's talking about COVID misinformation. The whole problem is messaging from the government, telling them what
1: they should and should not have on the platform. That was the problem. Yep. More and more, we're seeing that it's not <laughs> actually about liberty and freedom. It's it's one party or the other wanting to be yeah. the, the dictator in charge. And it's really dispiriting. Look, on top of not knowing whether or not Apple actually made this threat. Ron DeSantis characterized why the threat was made in a way that is also completely made up. So he basically says that not only do they want to kick, kick uh, Twitter out of the App Store, they want to do it because they don't, you know, respect freedom, they don't care about speech. Blah blah blah. There could be other reasons that we don't know about that there could be a violation of policy. And again, I'm not saying I, I yeah. agree with you that I don't think kicking them out of the, the App Store is commensurate with what's going on. It's a very serious thing to do given how. there is a monopolistic issue here Mm -hmm. where there's very few ways to actually access um, the apps that are on the market. Uh, However, you know, it does—there were a lot of conclusions that were jumped through there. And I just want to be clear, there are terms and standards that are adherent to all of these things. And other companies that have been kicked off, some for good reasons and some for political reasons that I think are not appropriate. And we would also have to follow up and see if Apple were to make this decision if they were doing so well on a good, on a, on a right. consistent basis, or not? Right,
0: and and there was, to be clear, some bad faith or some suspect kicking out of sure. the app store or Amazon's web hosting services. If we go back to the Parler, the Parler case, yeah, uh, which to me was not that it, it wasn't that there was no reason to do it with Parlor, It's that whatever they were complaining about with Parlor or the the presence of of, uh, of violent extremist rhetoric, January 6 organizing type stuff. Uh, uh, por- uh, illicit, illegal, underage, pornographic stuff—whatever they were accusing Parler of having—is it does have and is viola- was violating those protocols. But you could also find that on Facebook. Mm-hmm. You could also find that on the dominant social media companies, yeah. and they were not thrown out of the app store. So it was a little bit of, of it, it felt political. Mm-hmm. It felt it did feel nakedly political. Yeah.
1: Today. Also, are these people given an opportunity to cure the defect yeah. and come back on them? Like th- those are all conversations that should be had. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, conservative Fox News host Tucker Carlson, he also criticized Apple, saying in protests uh, secretive censorship and is, quote, a, uh, say it protects, rather, secretive censorship and is, quote, a lapdog for the Chinese Communist Party. Here's a portion of his monologue on Tuesday. As in China, social media in the United States
5: are censored. That's not compatible with democracy. You can't have censorship in a democracy, a country that censors is not a democracy. Elon Musk, who's not from this country, knows that. He bought Twitter with the aim of stopping censorship and restoring free speech. He just said this, there's been a lot of censorship on Twitter, and we're gonna find out what it is. Quote, the Twitter files on free speech suppression soon to be published on Twitter itself. The public deserves to know what really happened. End quote. So why shouldn't we know that? Why shouldn't we know who is shutting down free speech in a country that claims to be a democracy? WELL, EVERYBODY IN POWER IS panicked OVER THIS. APPLE IS THREATENING TO REMOVE TWITTER FROM ITS APP STORE. SO IF TWITTER NO LONGER CAN GET ITS APP ON THE APP STORE, THERE IS NO MORE TWITTER BECAUSE YOU ACCESS TWITTER THROUGH THE APP. SO THEY'RE ESSENTIALLY THREATENING TO SHUT DOWN TWITTER. MEANWHILE, THE WHITE HOUSE AND THE MEDIA ARE TRYING TO CONVINCE YOU THAT THE PROBLEM IS NOT CHINA THROWING PEOPLE IN CONCENTRATION CAMPS, SUPPRESSING FREE SPEECH. THE PROBLEM IS ELON MUSK who is trying to restore free speech.
0: Yeah, so so the element I agree with the element of this that is criticism of our government's strong-arming of social media companies on COVID and other subjects also the the that little lovely image of Hunter Biden floating on the TV screen on that issue. Yes, and I would like to know more about how Twitter made that decision. We already know a lot about what, how Facebook made that decision, so I, I I have a good sense of what happened, which is that they believed, based on constant uh, reports from the uh, FBI and national security officials and the mainstream media that Russian disinformation was everywhere and you're going to be responsible for the end of America as we know it, unless you take more action against mm-hmm. it. We are going to blame you for the fall of the U.S. unless you are have a hair trigger for this stuff. So then they did. They, they had a hair trigger for it. That is my understanding of what happened. I think it's pretty close to what happened. Sure, there might be—we can find out specifically who said what to who. That would be interesting. Yeah, would be. It would be. Uh,
1: it would be. Look, and again, I I don't I think that the I, I agree that the magnitude of banning someone from the App Store is very very significant. As yes. I said, I don't. Right. Tucker's right about that. It is significant. It is significant. I don't know that it means the end of Twitter. I mean, our, Twitter doesn't disappear off of our screens because it's banned from the App Store. If you wanted to re-download it because you got a new phone or on a new laptop or something like that that would be well, you the You could issue. access it, I guess, on uh, your the, desktop the rather yeah.
0: than on your phone. People
1: people were joking about it. might be
0: better for my health. Exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when there were some glitches happening in the last couple of weeks, uh, people were saying, if it stops working on the phones and it only is accessible through your computer, then many journalists and news folks will have uh, a much better uh, l- lower therapy bill, shall we are say. You, are you ever
0: looking at Twitter <laughs> on your desktop and go, ah, oh, sick of looking at the big Twitter. Let's see what the little <laughs> Twitter is doing. <laughs> I have had that compulsive impulse. It's a problem. I'm not We're deranged. Uh, (laughs) All right, more rising right after this.
6: I think it's a legitimate debate to be had. And that's, it's the things like that bother me because it's like, yo, we're not even allowing ourselves to have the conversation. Like, you're just putting these labels on people. Like, I'm transphobic because I feel like I'm, you know, just using a little common sense here. To your point, You know, there's just certain things minors cannot do because they're minors. So you don't think something as big as changing your gender? Shouldn't, you know, wait until you're at least 18? Like, that's just just like the, the fact that people can't even have a conversation about that without labeling somebody transphobic is very, 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 very strange to me.
1: That was radio host and media mogul Charlamagne Tha God denouncing the lack of debate around gender-affirming care Mm -hmm. for trans youth. What do you make of this, Robbie? Yeah, I
0: mean, I think he is expressing something a lot of people feel about this debate that um, activists who are on the the pro-trans side or are are very in favor of allowing um, these uh, medical procedures to be available um React very negatively and label people transphobic for asking questions about it um, it's a contentious issue and one obviously there's a lot of dissension on a lot of a lot of people feel differently about it and we you know we're trying to have an intelligent conversation on the show about it we've invited um, guests who are more informed than we are to tell us about why they feel in various ways it's, I mean it's something you know there's mainstream coverage asking questions about. What are the long-term effects of puberty blockers if you start them early? You know, how many people desist after having uh, ge- a gender dysphoric diagnosis or feelings? Um, there's a lot to kind of grapple with here. And I, and I get that, you know, I, as a libertarian, I am, I am, like, extremely averse, so averse, more averse than almost anyone, to saying, well, the state should come in and tell you you can't do this. Honestly, we could just take that off the table, because I don't really feel that way. But, but the whether it's good or not is whether this is healthy or whether this is wise is something we should be allowed to discuss of its own accord, even if there's not going to be a policy. But I, I think
1: that's that's precisely the problem that. The way that Charlemagne the God has framed it there as are we allowed to talk about this really ignores the extent to which there actually are laws being promulgated mm-hmm. and on the books now that would have the state intervene and prohibit parents from making the choices that they want to make. So, I, you know, I'm torn because at the end of the day, I think a lot of the pushback and the kind of rush to characterize people as transphobic is because there is a lot of really bad faith just asking questions out there. And there is some good faith just asking questions out there as well. But knowing that there is this political effort to use, I think, a very widespread kind of uncertainty about something that is pretty new to a lot of people's ears and understanding of the world to sow dissent and to make people very skeptical of, of the left. Um, you know, it's that that being a political agenda that's definitely out there in the ether, it's difficult for... I think people who want to be supportive and sympathetic of trans people to let any crack in the door open to those kinds of conversations, which I think ultimately could end up back like back backpedaling, like backsliding, and um, um, hurting the agenda in the long run. I, I don't know what to do about it though, because you cannot have this abstract conversation and say, let's just have it, let's just have a talk. Everybody could understand that minors making decisions is difficult. We don't let minors do a lot of things, and that, that sounds very reasonable to the ear, but you know a lot of. Kids aren't being fed healthy food. A lot of kids aren't being you know, monitored in their household. There's drug abuse in household. There's all kinds of sexual abuse in household. Right. A lot of things are going on, but we're not saying, OK, you let your kid get a nose job. I think that that's inappropriate. Let's take your kid away, or let's ban that decision. And without that being a part of all those other conversations, I don't think it's necessarily fair to compare, oh, we're just talking about what's best for kids, because in other instances, we allow all kinds of things to happen in people's well, homes without I don't
0: intervening. I mean, there there are a lot of laws, a lot of restrictions on how you can parent kit. There's a lot to prevent. I mean, right? You get you get in trouble for sexual abuse or actual abuse of well, any sure. nature. A child services investigation is Actually, something you and I both complained about on the show. Sure. So um, we want
1: to we want to escalate. We want to escalate. One look, there are a lot of abuses, mm-hmm. but the mechanisms of the state have not been proven to be well calibrated to actually addressing those kinds of abuses. Mm-hmm. So, and and I got to be honest, people who are in the situation of um, being gender dysphoric or gender fluid or being trans or what have you, tend to be among the most targeted and abused folks. They tend to experience more teen homelessness. Um, they're kicked out of their houses. They're shunned by their families. They uh, experience economic instability that leads them into certain careers, which are dangerous. And that's part of why the statistics for trans people being, um, you know, attacked and sexually abused and things are so high. It's because the the mechanisms that we have to support, these commu- support people who – go against what their family want want them to do yeah, are not I, very strong that's part
0: of it but I think there's also there's a higher higher rates of mental illness and substance abuse and and we don't risky have we don't have, good, we that's don't have not, good social supports with some of this stuff
1: but we don't have good social supports for those things anyway so what, what it feels like we're doing is instead of saying if we genuinely cared about communities we would be saying oh okay well how do we intervene on the behalf of folks to make sure that let's say even if they don't if their parents don't support transition, or they don't want, or they do want to transition, or are or unsure, how can we make sure that people are making the right kinds of decisions? How can we make sure that people have the space to be mm-hmm. safe and be able to pursue what they want to do without being coerced one way or the other because they're economically reliant on others? Well, and people?
0: then the component of it that the size, some of these bills are structured around, like I, I don't really want to tell people how to parent their own kids. That's, like, not my business. But there are components of it that how, how they affect others in terms of, for instance, the women's sports issue, like the deletion of female as a category for, uh, for athletics and other things that Robbie. does have a, that has a policy impact. It does like, have a policy impact.
1: I don't think that anyone can credibly say there's been a deletion of female as a category for sports. I think that in the very small number... I mean, this just came up with... Um, who was being interviewed on Joe Rogan, who dramatically overestimated the number of trans people that even exist in the Matt country? Wolf. Matt Walsh. Yep. You know, what did he say? That there were, like, hundreds of thousands, and then, in fact, there's, like, a, a, what, 5,000 people who yeah. transitioned over the past 10 years? So uh, that's not to there say there's that... There's
0: more than that, but yeah, he, he was off in his th- numbers.
1: it's th- not th- 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 to say that it's not a relevant mm-hmm. number or that if it's your, you know... Child who has been competing for a scholarship that they weren't able to get because someone who transitioned Mm -hmm. got it like that's not significant doesn't matter to you in your life, but with all that's going on in the world like I I I don't want to just keep deflecting away from it because honestly like in my in my private conversations in my home I think there it is an interesting conversation it is interesting to wonder you know how do you balance the interest of people who want to transition young so that they can have. The, they can they can block puberty and right. look more like the, the, the desired gender or the, the you know the gender that they um, ascribe to, but against the possibility that people who are young often make mistakes. Now, not as often as de-transitioner narratives would have you think, detransitioning is still overwhelmingly the exception to the rule for people who do ju- choose to transition. And that's another part of the story that makes it so difficult to talk about because the proportionalities here are very difficult to track. But I, I, I don't know. I, as willing as I am to like be open to the idea that obviously, it, you know, we should be concerned that people are making the right decisions and they don't have regrets. The reality is that there are laws. One, one person, one group wants to have a conversation or is potentially open to a conversation, but there's another group that is actually trying to pass and successfully promulgating laws that would prevent any conversation from happening because it's against the law to do X, Y, and Z. And 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 that's that's the whole problem. That's the asymmetry here. That's leading to people, Charlemagne, Like, it's not that you can't talk about it, but the, of course there are going to be people who are less willing to open the door to that conversation when they think the consequences are going to be that they are banned from having one outcome. What do you mean
0: banned? What
1: laws? Laws that would criminalize parents for allowing their kids to transition. Right. That's what we, I mean. That's what we were talking about last week or was the week before with our our trans guest.
0: I think. Right. Those laws targeting underage. Kids, or it's not saying if you're overage you can still transition. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a—well, it's a—I mean, it's a—right, I, I don't support those laws. Right, should, should, the, but, should,
1: should the law say that if you don't feed your kid five servings of vegetables a day, that you're criminalized and thrown in jail? No. Should there be laws Although, that say— Probably a lot
0: of people, probably a lot of liberals who feel differently, but—
1: Well, I'm not one of them. Yeah. So should there be a law that says that if you— you know, had like allow your child to get a nose job on their 16th birthday, you should be thrown in jail. I mean, that's that's really the magnitude of what we're talking about right now. Yeah. The, 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 these are not we're not having the same conversation. The one side and the other side are not arguing for that. And the idea that the the that the left is being considered to be the more restrictive like party here because there is a lot of like public and online rah-rah anger about you know certain discussions about trans issues is frustrating because the other side is fully trying to restrict not just your speech, but your ability to act and live the way that you want to live.
0: Well, okay, but the the liberal side or the progressive side, vis-a-vis the federal government, has promulgated all sorts of rules for how schools must handle these situations again in terms of the facilities in terms of the sports teams in terms of all those things again under the auspices of title 9 no one voting on anything new no legislators coming together and hammering out a good idea based on what their constituents wants just declarations based on decades old laws and, and from the federal government pertaining to this that are that are requirements that well, are mandatory if you're
1: talking about that, the title the obama title IX thing wasn't that yeah. an advisory opinion and now we're having all of yeah, it. I'm I mean, sorry, it's but, enforced. It's, but now no. I mean, it's enforced by schools that want to enforce it, and now I mean, we, you don't
0: want to go up against it. But, then, right? They're not going to risk court.
1: But Robbie, what we're seeing right now is school board after school board after school mm-hmm. board doing the exact opposite and voting to restrict the ability of trans people to, to, uh, to live, you know to have to have their uh, pronouns affirmed in the school. You know, getting rid of all, rolling all of that back, not allowing you to teach about CRT. It's Mm -hmm. not CRT, like basic facts about American history, et cetera. And so, like, look, I don't like that, but school boards are making their own decision. But on one hand, again, school boards are making decisions. At one point, you didn't like what they were doing. At one point, I didn't like what they were doing. But that's what's happening. It's a very different thing from a federal government or state governments coming into people's homes and telling them that they are criminalized Mm -hmm. for raising their kid in a certain way.
0: I mean, the, the federal government—I mean, you're right. That's I, I think what I'm saying is there's a lot of ordering parent, kids, parents, schools based on whoever's in power. Now, a lot of the anti-trans stuff—and again, I don't agree with all of it—has been arrived at via more democratic processes than the Title IX guidance on this stuff, which guidance. was just— well, but okay, but yeah, guidance. But the schools would have to say this. What a school district would have to say. Well, we're not going to do this. We're going to risk a federal lawsuit. We're going to like. They don't do that.
1: I don't. That's a different conversation. I don't know that there was the guidance essentially for, has the
0: force of law. It does. It in effect has the force of law.
1: I don't understand how that can be the case if it's guidance.
0: Because you'll be denied. It's guidance, but you'll be denied federal funding if you don't do no,
1: it. No, I mean, we, this is a whole other conversation we should get, get into because there are very specific rules about the government's ability to use money to coerce in those kinds of ways that have been litigated to the nth degree and oftentimes are struck down because they don't want the government. I mean, there are a lot of rules against the government using right, they would be struck to down. actually down. They'd sue. be struck
0: down if, if, the, if the schools fought back, but you'd have to go up against what was the Obama administration? Now the Biden administration,
1: right? So I don't, I don't think there's actually a credible threat there, especially since it's just guidance. It's like no, there's, it's no, not. there's no, there's no legal authority if it's just guidance. But we, it's, it's too much for true. this conversation. All right, we should. Uh, we'll have more rising right after this. Thank you. The layoffs have begun at CNN due to a cost-cutting strategy by parent company Warner Brothers Discovery. CNN CEO Chris Licht said in a memo today that it is a difficult time for everyone He added, "Our people are at the heart and soul of this organization. It is incredibly hard to say goodbye to any one member of the CNN team, much less many. I recently described this process as a gut punch because I know that's how it feels Mm. for all of us.
0: But say goodbye, they will. It sounds like.
1: Yeah, I don't know how many how much those corporate platitudes are going to go over (laughs) with the people who actually have lost their jobs. The question is, is this going to be like the pattern we've seen across many industries, where to save money they cut costs, but it doesn't necessarily in order to the benefit of the the, the, the company in terms of the product that they're actually putting out there. Is the issue a staffing issue, or is it that CNN isn't yeah. making content that people want to watch?
0: Or is it an issue like Twitter is maybe demonstrating, which you can fire massive amounts of people and still run the company. It's what I think yeah, they're well, demonstrating. but
1: that, that story hasn't quite been concluded That's, yet. We'll, all right. We won't, we won't talk. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to make us talk about Twitter for
0: the 40th time today. Yeah. We'll stick with CNN. Uh, yeah. It, obviously, their issue was was programming. It was content-based. It was the viewpoints of the... Uh, of the of the journalists, I think I um, saw Don Lemon on one of the late shows uh, very recently, maybe as recently as last night. I'm um, saying that I, I didn't watch it live. Obviously, I saw a clip later. Him saying that <laughs>
1: which is the that, problem, which is what CNN <laughs> right, is doing right,
0: right, right now. <laughs> watch it live, he, and he was. Th- the question was, is CNN flailing because its uh, personalities are deemed or judged to be viewed to be too liberal? and Don Lemon says I don't think we're too liberal we're just we're just journalists we're just doing our job and right you right you rolled your eyes at that which is audiences are rolling their eyes at that people have moved away
1: look don lemon i it, there was a time when i was a what i i will admit to have being a fan I I love his I'm not not a fan His his New Year's Eve specials It's choice It's Mm -hmm. peak television uh, When he and Anderson Cooper Have a couple of cocktails And ring in the New Year But it is so narrow-minded To think that he is anything But a screaming liberal So much so that he catches The ire of leftists constantly Probably as much as he is uh, Irritating conservatives Across the board I don't understand how these people Aren't self-aware I know that I'm a leftist I know before I say something what the reaction is going to be in front of different audiences and sometimes calibrate accordingly. The fact that he has such blindness about his own political position and how he's coming off in the world is exactly, exactly what's wrong with not just CNN, but a lot of these uh, media institutions.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, They did uh, hire—or not hire. They did promote someone um, who I think is a pretty good— Person, Their White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly, is—so well so he's going to be their main White House co- mm. correspondent now. He's a pretty good journalist. That's there fair. are good journalists at CNN. I enjoy a lot of their content. Yeah. I think their, uh, some of their election content was very good.
1: I really actually—I was going to say, yeah. midterm night, I found myself coming back yeah. to CNN over and over. I,
0: I think they are they get it more than MSNBC does, yeah. actually, right now, well, for s- certain. Spe-
1: speaking of speaking MSNBC.
0: Of. <laughs> well, yes. Meanwhile, over at MSNBC, Joy Ann Reid had this to say about white nationalist Nick Fuentes' who's meeting with former president president donald trump you know
3: some people come out and say well that's horrible you know and say he's a terrible person they don't want to talk about trump they say but trump's not an anti-semite they carve out of that trump's not a bad guy he shouldn't have had him at the table but the problem is the rest of what fuentes just said to me that doesn't sound any different than fundamentally what the party platform is they don't believe in elections they don't necessarily like the idea of democracy mike lee said democracy is a bad idea they don't like the idea of women controlling their bodies they clearly wouldn't mind having a dictator because they don't think that elections matter they think they should just decide who the president of the united states is they hate the culture they're angry that the culture is too friendly to lgbtq people I I, just—I see a very small degree of difference between what he believes and what they believe. I just—
1: Now, all of the things that she listed were, sure, things that, you know, Republicans support. And, I mean, obviously, her characterizations are what they are. But those are fine critiques to make of the Republican Party. That's not why people are mad at Nick Fuentes. Nick Fuentes is a Holocaust-denying, inward-saying white supremacist— even that, that, even like conservatives who might dance around words like white supremacists and racists right. sometimes are openly disavowing and pushing themselves away from because they know that there's no, there, there, there's nothing to defend there. People at of
0: Fuentes's ilk believe that Jewish people are inferior because of like the structure of their bones. They're, like, they're it's doing not, physiognomy. It's different. <laughs> right. than, that's not like Trump does not believe that. You can make whatever criticisms you want. That is not a mainstream view in the Republican Party. Sorry, there, there is a yeah. huge difference between Trump yeah. and the Republican Party and what Nick Fuentes represents, which is why he's being roundly criticized right. and, per, you know, Republican figure after Republican figure saying you should not have, uh, you should not break bread with Nick Fuentes, who doesn't, re- right, he represents genuinely racist, genuinely Holocaust denying people at the very fringe of, of political thought. There's not a lot of them. This is not a movement that has any strength or relevance. It yeah. is solely one I mean, person who has successfully attached himself to Kanye West. Well done.
1: I mean, look, I do think that there you can't say that the movement ha- has absolutely no energy. Charlottesville wasn't that long ago. Nick Fuentes was there and associating with those groups. I mean, that's that's part of why people are so angry about him having sat down with, with President Trump. So you can make it I, mean, I understand why Democrats and politicians would want to try to tie and make more of the relationship between Nick Fuentes and Trump, because it looks bad. And I think that there is definitely a criticism that says, Donald Trump, what is going on with you and your handlers that you would end up in this kind of situation? And why is it that the friends of your friends, why is it that the people you're hanging out with, even if your intention was only to meet with with Kanye West, why are they surrounded by people who are so nefarious uh, and who have such um, abhorrent views? Fine, make that argument. But to pretend that there's no space between Nick Fuentes and your average Republican, I think— it undermines mm-hmm. the credibility of the interlocutor, and it undermines the credibility of Democrats who do try to make everybody into the worst version of some kind of like MAGA Republican stereotype. And Joy stereotype. Reads the worst
0: version of this, because she she truly doesn't—I I believe that she doesn't understand the difference between Nick and— she doesn't have Nick any Lentes intellectual and,
1: curiosity about what's going no. on on the right. And I, I don't know. I feel like— I don't expect your average person to be following conservative news outlets and watching Fox Mm -hmm. and reading Breitbart and exposing herself to what's going on in the world. But it very much is her job. And it it, Well and she was you know who that
0: other guest is? That's Kurt Bardella who came from the right, was became like a never Trump person and is now just a fully Absorbed uh, kind of, you know, MSNBC figure, but he came from, like, he was a publicist at Breitbart. Oh, really? That's what his job (laughs) was. So he understands. Oh, and he's also the guy, by the way, he's the um, Lauren Boebert OnlyFans, you know, number one subscriber, if you remember that. (laughs) uh... that.
1: Okay, so let me see if I got this straight. MSNBC (laughs) is basically the number one rehabilitation mechanism for conservatives who had all of the views that. She just articulated that she said we're so reprehensible, right? Election denying, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, doesn't respect LGBT people, all of the the whole nine yards. And she's sitting there with someone who was a proud member of that party, apparently until recently, or maybe still is a a Republican but isn't a a MAGA Republican, whatever that means, and has the audacity to (laughs) to say that it's other people are the problem and not her and her own networks Mm -hmm. um, having the effect of taking person after person. Um, Bush's former comms woman Nicole Wallace, and making them the stars of their own network. Yep. As a leftist, this is what's really frustrating to me, because with all of the conversation about liberal bias in media, which totally exists, the thing that I think people have appetite for, which is genuine populism on the right and the left, is completely excluded. And leftists, she will she will sit down with a person like that long before she sits down with anybody who ever voted for Bernie Sanders.
0: Wow, he did too. I'm just, I was Googling Kurt Bardell to make sure I had that origin right. I did have it Right. He, he did an op-ed for USA today I work for Republicans in Breitbart Trump made me see the light and then a few weeks later I used to work at Breitbart here's why I think they fired like he got a he did a couple of these not just one <laughs> God
1: it's the look yeah. I don't like to use the word grift it's thrown around a little bit too much so no. let me let me choose a different word the power structure validates a very narrow, span of political worldview. And it's not about it being left or right. It's this status quo establishment enshrining view of the world, where it's all about respecting norms. Everything has to go around as clockwork. We just have to maintain the system that benefits people like these and the people who go on these shows and excludes the majority of Americans from the alleged American dream. And that's what we're seeing here. And you can be
0: a former Republican or even former person associated with a very conservative news website and then change your views or, or sure. find Trump odious. And what I—that I, describes me to some degree. Sure. Um, and it describes people like Alyssa Farah Griffin, who I, I think is doing a pretty good job yeah. um, uh, trying to educate her co-hosts at The View and at CNN. And they're so about are so dismissive her, though. Uh, yeah, she, she, but she does a good job, I think, of, of explaining— Uh, She's been inside the administration And she can speak for uh, And there are, they exist, a lot of Republicans Who do want to move on from Trump For both practical and and moral and constitution for a bunch of reasons. And uh, she she does that well without going the full this right. full route of but, sit, but, sitting there and pretending that there's right. no difference between I, Nick I and Donald Trump. I agree. But
1: what, what this thing I just occurred to me, the, what's wrong with what um, Joy Ann Reed is doing here, what it exposes is that she doesn't actually care. All of those things that she described as being Republican priorities that she attributed to Nick Fuentes is that that's why people are mad at him. Those are still the priorities of all of the never-Trump Republicans, but she doesn't care. The, the real issue right. is the vibes. The they vibes. don't like the vibes that Trump has. They don't like the disrespect for decorum and the rules. And it's all optics. It's so superficial. And to be so self-righteous about something that isn't even substantive, it's it's gross. It's really disgusting. And if, if these institutions, if these media organizations would understand why so many people are turning it off and only watching it in clip form on YouTube the next day— There's a hint. I
0: should look in the mirror. More rising right after this.
1: In October, at least 10 residents of the Brooklyn neighborhood, Little Pakistan, were appointed to the 44th Assembly District's County Committee, a body of neighborhood representatives across the borough who vote on the party's rules and its nominees for special elections. Their appointments were pushed through by Brooklyn's Democratic Party organization, Without the appointee's knowledge. The new slate
0: of ghost appointees was pushed through at an assembly meeting in October in an effort to prevent the nomination of those who were viewed as at odds with Democratic Party leadership. Not only were these residents appointed without their knowledge, but their signatures were forged on proxy forms that transferred their voting powers over to people who align with the party establishment. A spokesperson for the Brooklyn Democratic Party declined to comment on these ghost members to the city who first broke the story. Joining us now to discuss is City Hall reporter for the city, Yoav Gonin. Welcome, Yoav. How
6: you doing? Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. So tell us more about this. How was this scheme pulled off, the forging of signatures, et cetera? How were these people even selected? Were they, are they even participants in the, in the party
6: at all? Um, we, we spoke to a number who said um, they, they really didn't know much about the, the Brooklyn Democratic Party. Uh, most of them were, as, as far as we knew, registered Democrats. So they said, um, but but they said their involvement with politics was essentially uh, voting in, in elections. So um, most of the one most of the people we spoke to who were appointed without their knowledge really had no idea how they ended up on this list. Um, and a number of them even said that uh, they were aware of, of people who, who were appointed who had moved out of the state uh, months ago, as, as far back as June.
1: So the, the goal here seems to be um, getting around... People who might not align with what the Democratic Party establishment is supporting. Are there specific issues that are contentious and that they, the establishment has been struggling to get consensus with that would have motivated them to take this kind of action? What's the state of play looking like in the, looking like in the Brooklyn Democratic Party right now?
6: Well, I, 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 it, there's actually quite a range of issues, and, and, and it starts with how to kind of uh, how to how to run the party, how, how transparent to be. Uh, how much involvement to include? That you know, technically there's there's more than 4,000 uh, officials in the party, and and um, the opposition argues that they want a greater role. They they, they don't want uh, decisions about uh, uh, what the party is going to do to come from the top. They want they want uh, a, a more say for these uh, county committee members that are called. Um, but it also comes to who uh, you know the party plays a role in nominating officials for state office, and they also play a role in nominating people for judgeships. And a lot of times those are in dispute between more moderates and and progressives. So um, it's a host of issues they're arguing about, and and clearly, um, you you know, the people in power are willing to go to great lengths uh, to keep that power.
1: I mean, it's a little—it's a little confusing, because on on one hand, it would seem to be a good thing to have people from communities that aren't usually represented um, across the the district—across the the borough, on these kinds of committees. It's really—the issue is the fact of them not being aware and and able to actually show up and vote in their own interests or their community's interests and instead having their votes appropriate. Has there been any feedback at all from the Democratic Party about that aspect of it, which seems a lot more pernicious?
6: Right, and and I think they they would they have pushed back on this idea a little bit previously, and um, and and I think there's actually two things going on here. I really do think there is a legit a legitimate attempt by the uh, Pakistani American community to to get more involved in politics. They realize that um, although these are low level roles in the party, that's that's your first uh, foothold into having a greater say in what happens. So. I think there is a, a, a legitimate um, movement happening there, and but it appears that someone who was aligned with party leadership—and at this point, we don't know exactly who it is yet—somebody sought to capitalize on that movement and basically sneak uh, you know, at least 10 names in there that, that uh, didn't belong because they, they weren't informed. Um, so it, it does seem like they're kind of capitalizing you know, underhandedly on, on a legitimate movement. Mm.
0: Was this, uh, so, so what's going to happen now? Are the people responsible going to face, uh, is this is criminal issues, et cetera?
6: Um, the, the, it seems to me the only area where it might verge into criminality is uh, when signatures are forged. Um, in, in these ten cases, we actually don't know of, of, of any forgery as of yet. Uh, we reported, me and my colleague George Joseph, earlier this year of at least a handful of forgeries um, kind of involved in in the same thing, the the selection of these uh, low-level party officials. Uh, But the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office has said they're taking a look at some of these issues. Um, We don't know that it's a full-blown investigation as of yet, but it has caught the attention of the Brooklyn DA.
1: And in in your story, you know, at at least uh, one person, a former executive director of the Brooklyn Democratic Party, says that uh, everyone—this has been going on for decades. This isn't some uh, new development. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came to break the story, how you came to be aware of it?
6: Uh, Well, um, we've been paying close attention to to the the party this year. There were a number of incidents in recent years that, that kind of caught our attention and it didn't seem like the, the party was getting enough atten- like persistent attention from, from reporters and, and they were kind of doing underhanded tactics out in the open because nobody was paying close attention. So we've developed some sources, uh, you know, um, in large part people who are opposed to, to what the party is doing and, and, and the ways that they're maintaining power. And in this case, uh, we basically got a tip that, that something strange was going on. Uh, we got a list of everyone who was appointed, and we went uh, to the neighborhood uh, where they all lived, and, and we knocked on doors, and, and that's how we found people.
1: Mm. Fascinating story, and we appreciate you coming here to talk about all of your coverage of it.
6: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: We'll have more Rising for you right after this.
0: New York City police will involuntarily remove people that they deem to have mental illnesses from the streets and then put them in hospitals. This effort is being directed by New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who has prioritized clearing homeless encampments during his time in office. The New York Times writes.
1: Adams says city agencies will hospitalize people who are a danger to themselves, even if they pose no risk of harming others. The mayor argued that New York had a, quote, moral obligation to help these people. This is according to The New York Times.
0: Bet you're going to have some problems with this.
1: I think the question is, if you have a moral obligation to helping people, are you actually helping these people? Or are we doing what seems to be the gist of so many of his policies, which is sweeping the problem under the rug for the convenience of more affluent city dwellers who complain about having to see the socioeconomic inequity and the mental health issues that are rampant in our population. Isn't
0: leaving them to flail in the streets
1: a form of sweeping it under the rug or ignoring the problem? Sure. So it depends on what is actually being done and whether or not it's better or worse in the conditions that they're currently in. So we're talking about people now, Now this is an admission that it's not even about public safety, which is a bell that they've been ringing very loudly and Eric Adams has been ringing very loudly, despite there not actually being a commensurate rise in crime. And we've seen this now that the midterms are over, everyone stopped talking about crimes and there have been dramatic reports about how across the ideological spectrum, everyone's just dropped that issue because it really was a, a media fabrication. So here he's not even saying this is about well, crime. You mean
0: in New York specifically?
1: Yeah. No, well, other places as well, but we're talking about New York specifically here. But now we're seeing—he's saying—he's not even arguing that this is about an anti-crime initiative. This is addressing people who are not a harm to others, but maybe—apparently are are a harm to themselves, whatever that means. Now, the question is, are—is there going to be funding put toward mental health facilities that can actually accommodate the needs of this community, or what does it mean? Because already, the problem—the reason there's so many people who are on the street now is because we've seen a massive— a reduction in hospital beds there's something now um, like uh, 14 hospital beds for every hundred thousand mentally ill people not in New York just generally speaking across the country and in New York um, you know you've seen a rise in the population and a rise in the reports of emotionally disturbed person from people from 2015 to 2018 by about 23 percent however in 2000, New York State had 6,555 certified inpatient psychiatric beds. By 2018, that number had dropped 12 percent, and it's continued to de- continuing to decline. So I, I support, obviously, a program that's going to address the mental health needs of people, but I'm very skeptical if it's not com- coming along with a lot of reporting and conversation about all of these new facilities that are going to be built and staff that's going to be hired to actually attend to this Well, population. in this
0: story, Governor Hochul says she's going to be adding— some number of hospital beds. I mean, we're not—we're talking about, um, according to this article, and this makes sense, we're talking about, I think, a few thousand people who are sleeping on the streets or in the subway with mental illness problems that this needs to be dealt with. So if you have 6,000 available hospital beds, in theory, that should cover it. I mean, maybe you don't have enough staff to support that. Um, but it, but you're right that it sounds like from reading this article that the, the number so because people are brought in well, well, the- and then they're and then they're let go when their when their condition improves slightly because somebody else needs the bed so yes That's there right. does need to be there need to be enough s- support in the facilities for the people being brought in totally agree with that but I, I don't think it's wrong even if it's it's not and I I mean I quibble with you slightly like, this article says that it, it's still not a it's it's not a we're not talking about so many incidents. There has been a, a rise in incidents on the subway. It's still, it's still a very small number, so it's not, maybe it's not socially significant. But I'd, even if it's a small number, and then it's just people who are in real distress, in real, like in obvious misery and suffering, like I, do, I, I think something should be done to help them. So like, like just leaving them to languish does not seem—
1: What what I'm doing is not being quite so credulous about the idea that rounding people up off the street and institutionalizing Mm -hmm. them is necessarily in their best interest. I think that it takes psychological evaluation. I think it takes uh, whether or not the the evaluation indicates that there is some treatment plan that would be helpful to them. Is there enough staff and resources to make sure that treatment plan is followed since people who are mentally ill— kind of notoriously have difficulty sticking to their regiments. Yeah. It's a big undertaking. And I also think, and I wonder what you think about this, there's some civil libertarian concerns about whether or not we have to force people to choose between being institution- institutionalized, basically imprisoned, in conditions that are often, frankly, commensurate with incarceration um, just because they don't want to live in a home or live in a street. Are, are you allowed... To basically wander around the city, or is that, are we going to say that that's a criminal? That's a criminal act.
0: I mean, if you but if you watch these people there, I just I mean, people understand what we mean by suffering from mental health problems. These are people who are shaking and muttering at but, all look, times, look, who are in
1: probably well, there's such a there's a diversity suffering. of experiences that people have had. Well, that's what we're talking about. And, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, let's say, you know, there's many people who are schizophrenic, uh, relatively high functioning schizophrenics. Mm-hmm. They just don't want to be. In one domicile, the one of, they want to live outside, they want to walk around, and they cause various le- You know, they're at various levels of risk to themselves. Now, again, we're not talking about risk to others. By Eric Adams' own admission, this isn't about risk to others. So, what is it that you know we're we're subjectively looking at people and saying? They need to be institutionalized, or do they need a place to live so they don't freeze to death in the winter? That like what happens to so many homeless people. Do we need to make sure they have access to food? Do they need to have access to showers and clean clothes and other kinds of resources? But that's not the conversation we ever end up happening. Need to take it's about an are we going to lock medication. them up?
0: That's what they need. They need to take antipsychotic medication. It's not about locking people up because locking people up is good. We don't want to lock people up. But they need to be somewhere where they come down, where they are medicated and they're no longer having delusional episodes, they're not shaking uncontrollably. And then when you have that under control, you can figure out what the next step is. I don't
1: is. know that shaking uncontrollably is just I mean, like again, that seems like an optics thing that's more related to our comfort and perceiving are really my comfort is about their comfort. I I, I don't know that that's I don't know that that's true. Look, I, I feel this is actually a, a very difficult conversation and it strikes me as interesting that when we're talking about Trans issues. We want to have all this nuance, and everybody wants to have an opinion. And you know, like, is this the best choice of action? We're talking about COVID. We're talking about should we force drugs on people? Should we mandate this mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z? And I don't. Under- I, I I have some concerns as a libertarian socialist about the coercive nature of these kinds of policies, and whether I, I'm just checking myself and my instincts about whether or not it's about my comfort as a middle class person walking through the street and in the internalized fear and stigma against homeless people that makes me think, oh, this is for their own good to block them up and and, and have them medicated and subdued in these kinds of ways? Or is this really about a public health issue and actually caring about them and their own interests and needs? And I think that that kind of evaluation really does have to be made it on a case by case basis and the priority needs to be do we have the social support systems that we would design if we actually wanted to help people versus are we taking action that's designed to just get them out of sight first and foremost mm-hmm. and it's not it's just not clear to me given the complete lack of a conversation about prioritizing uh reestablishing the mental health support that used to exist 10 20 30 especially 40 50 years ago in the 1970s, which is the era in which a lot of the mental health facilities were but shut down. a lot of that was shut down for abuse. the kind
0: of – well, you're yeah, right, for the right. kind of concerns you're so talking about or forcing people. It, but It
1: seems to me that we had a underfund, like bad, underfunded, abusive institutions, and the default was, okay, let's just wash our hands of this. Way. At least we're not liable so the people are in the street. At what point is there – Do we, if we actually care, as Eric Adams said, about the well-being and the, the kind of um, – Ethical compulsion to help this group of people, what does that look like? And it seems to me that neither bad facilities or laissez faire mm-hmm. is, is the way to do that.
0: But it seems to me that clearing the encampments and moving people, having enough beds for them to places where they can get antipsychotic care which doesn't, which and doesn't then exist.
1: I mean, that's the issue, that's the conversation that we've had with so many guests on here that seem to be disagreeing, but what they're really quibbling about is that everyone agrees on the right solution, but given that that solution doesn't exist, the resources don't exist, the beds don't exist, the rooms for homeless people don't exist, and not, Mm -hmm. not just mentally ill ones, but just homeless people in general, then there's different priorities. Some people are like, okay, well, they shouldn't have rights, if they have a drug addiction problem, they shouldn't have rights to housing, they should have to get their addiction Addressed first. The other camp says, well, yes, I agree, but we also don't have addiction um, facilities, so what? Should they sleep in the street in the interim? And so we go round and round in circles. Fundamentally, there's no resources. There's not enough housing resources, so it's not enough um, drug addiction resources. And it's, it's frustrating to feel like you're constantly pit against people. And we're all saying that we want the best thing for, both peop- for, for everybody involved, but nobody, the people in charge aren't acting in a way that would enable us to have, I think, what we could agree to be the best outcomes here. Mm. Wow. Yeah.
0: All right, well, I don't know if we're agreeing or not. <laughs> I, think maybe we're, I mean, right, the debate is just that, between the people we've had on the show who will say, yeah, we've we, we got to just get them, house, get them off the streets, get them into housing, yeah. and then people will say, but that's not going to work and they're not going to stay there. If they're still having significant drug abuse and mental health problems, we have to work on those first. I have tended to think those people have more compelling arguments, and yes, if more money needs to be put for that purpose, then we should do that in order to not have people sleeping on the streets, etc., which can be a, right, not a pervasive crime problem, but can have can have bad effects on people living in those communities and is not good for those people themselves. Doesn't feel... As, as libertarian yeah. as I am, the, as many concerns as I have, I don't want to incarcerate people. I don't want to lock people up contrary to their will. I want people to be free to be out and about in the city, even if they're making drug choices that I don't think are good for them. But... Uh, but but, I mean, when you see these people, it, it's it is, it's a level of suffering that feels cruel to me to just say, well, can't do anything about it, enjoy your tent until you die.
1: Yeah, it shouldn't be, we can't do anything about it. But I, I, I'm sorry, I do, I keep hearing a focus on, like, I don't think that the living on... It seems like the conversation always tends to focus on the optics of what's going on as opposed to being centered on the well-being of the people involved and maybe that I'm being too not cynical. To see
3: them
1: but when I
0: see them I'm struck by them. their suffering I mean I am by their by their situation okay. my heartstrings are being tongued at okay. Rihanna. all right oh, you don't well, believe like,
1: it I, I, I'm not saying that I, I would never I would never you want gotta, to you're gonna break out the, to the, your... Grinch, uh,
0: the 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 glimpse inside
1: no I think that most people you know, there's, there's a mix of, look, I think that even the people who have distaste for the homeless, some of that distaste that I don't agree with is rooted in the dissonance that comes from realizing that you live in a society where you can be so relatively advantaged to someone else and still share that same space. And I think that dissonance is something that we should use to direct positive social policies but it can be something that is used to simply brush things under the rug. So I do appreciate Adams using the language that says he's going to center the humanitarian cause of helping people who are mentally ill. Uh, but I look forward to keeping uh, continuing to following the story, c- continuing to following the story, and see if actually he puts the mm. money where well, he, he mouth should take. A, and
0: he should take a page out of uh, Muriel Bowser's book. Uh, there, uh, there were um, under the bridge tent encampments here in D.C. that had been mostly closed, and they, they told the—you go in first, you tell the people that these are going to be shut, you give them—you don't just show up and destroy all their stuff and arrest them all. There's a, there's, a, there's a way to do it that minimizes the risk of some negative encounter. And I, like you, don't have a lot of faith in the police necessarily to do that, but it was done successfully here, and they And where are those people now? That. They offered—all of them were offered housing, and many of them took it. And the rest? I don't know if they all took it. It's hard to get these people to go into housing, but it's housing is available, here at least. Mm. Mm. We'll have more rising right after this.
1: Fashion House Balenciaga is facing backlash over its latest ad campaign featuring children holding teddy bears dressed in bondage gear. The holiday campaign's second ad shows a page from a Supreme Court ruling on child porn, United States v. Williams. We've determined not to air the ad here, Balenciaga removed the ad, but not before it drew the ire of the public. Here are the hosts of ABC's The View weighing in. What's going on here? I, I found
3: this ad campaign particularly distasteful um, in this moment. So there's this, there's growing anti-LGBTQ sentiment right now. And it, wh- how it's being framed is as... Portraying, you know, trans people as groomers. This is a term you'll hear on the far right. They're groomers. This is where you get the anti drag queen stuff that we're seeing. So Balenciaga played right into their hands by having kids in a sexualized manner, carrying something that represents, you know, sex acts. I think it was a really bad misstep at a moment where it's just kind of a dangerous time to even give credence to those kind of insane takes. Yeah, I mean, we can't even show the picture because it's so distasteful. But what's also very distasteful is like, Balenciaga lately, I mean, their stuff is just ugly. I mean, the the bag that that their little girl is holding is ugly. Do you remember when Kim K was dressed in Balenciaga for the gala? She loves it. It Look look. at that. Oh, she looked like a bat
1: or something. I
0: I didn't quite like that Kim outfit either. Balenciaga's latest muse, Kim Kardashian, broke her silence on the brand's ads. The mother of four took to Twitter, calling the images disturbing and said she was left shaken. She further tweeted, quote, I have been quiet for the past few days, not because I haven't been disgusted and outraged by the recent Balenciaga campaigns, but because I wanted an opportunity to speak to their team to understand for myself how this could have happened. Balenciaga is now suing the production company it hired to produce the ad, particularly for including the Supreme Court papers, which it maintains were not authorized. We've reached out to Balenciaga's parent company, caring, but have not heard back uh, as of now. And yeah, that the Supreme Court... That
1: is—that I think by that, far is the worst part I agree. it seems purposeful Ag- and is actually about child porn right. as opposed to, you know, the the the, the bondage gear right. and stuff, which is I think a distasteful mixing of adult things with kid yeah. things, but not actually. The Supreme about Court pornography, page gets
0: rid of whatever, the whatever you right, whatever you could have said about. You said, well, it's a misunderstanding. That's not what they're yeah. going for. Oh, we're sorry you took it that way, etc. No, but you clearly were, ta- right. you, you thought you knew people would take it that way if right. you put that there. Right,
1: 100%. Now, I saw, I mean, people have been very upset with Kim Kardashian. I think that I personally find her statement to be, you know, satisfactory. Balenciaga was probably going to sue whatever production set designer or whatever was involved and distance themselves from this and move on. I kind of agree with Sonny as well <laughs> about some of the design choices also being a problem with Balenciaga. You know, they're the ones for people who don't know, who are famous for... Um, I don't know i'm like- one of those
0: people talk to me <laughs> what are they famous they for
1: sell, they sell for instance like a, a purse that looks like a giant plastic trash bag that comes in black and white depending what kind of hefty you like and the and the strap is like you know like yeah. a red tie or whatever like you would expect on a, on a classic trash bag but it's made of i guess i suppose leather or something more sustainable and it costs like five thousand dollars or something yeah, you know this is high fashion stuff. yeah they do they do a lot of like derelict, leaked, if you remember, from Zoolander. That, that, that oh. kind of faux poor trash. How are we supposed to
0: make the children read if they can't even fit inside the building, Brianna? Exactly. Oh, I, I, I
1: appreciate that you also remember yes. these twenty-year-old movies with me. So, so yeah. Like, there's a lot of problems, and I think that said, that um, sorry, Farah, uh, sorry, Alyssa was was right there also mm-hmm. saying that this does seem to be one of these instances where it exposes a lot of people who have nothing to do with this, but who are the folks of a lot of right-wing attention right now as being somehow sympathetic to this. Now, I don't think there's anything LGBTQIA about the Balenciaga. I mean, that's just a company that has nothing to do with LGBTQIA people. But people are going to make that leap and say, oh, look, here's the left that welcomes this kind of behavior. And it's a bad look. And I, I don't know. I, wish, I yeah. wish people wouldn't keep putting LGBTQIA people and the left more broadly in positions where we have to disclaim, disclaim, disclaim a bunch of nonsense.
0: Yeah, I, I, it sort of is... Been talked about in the same conversations as the whole, you know, drag queens and uh, children, which that itself is combining a bunch of different things. Yes, some which are like, okay, just people in costumes reading to children. If it's not a sexualized costume, it's not. Then, but we have all seen, you know, the videos of I think what are more disturbing examples of stripping and tipping going on involving kids. That I think this. Seems to me on that same spectrum. Yeah, sure. And, and we've also talked on the show. Bad.
1: We've looked at pictures of kids sitting up at Hooters with their with their fathers, and mm. that would not be my choice either. And you know, we we look at Barbie dolls that are stacked <laughs> and per- permanently standing on their tippy toes, so they look like sexual objects. And we give these things to kids. What there's, now? There's a-
0: Barbies. No, I know what they are. What do you (laughs) mean they're permanently on their tippy toes? No,
1: Barbies' toes are like like this so she Uh can always be in high heels and, you know, pert the way that, you know, women are apparently supposed to be. But like we, I, I think it's a little bit dishonest to pretend the way that some of the commentary has pretended. Like, there's not a lot of spaces in our society where we sexualize. We were talking during the break about some of our favorite kind of teen shows and about how the casting decisions and some of these shows like Euphoria make us more comfortable with the explicit sexuality of the kids there. And where because when there's the kids playing, the, the actors are, old, are older. Right, yeah. whereas other shows where the kids are more accurately cast, like Stranger Things, they're supposed to be the same ages. And if you yeah. imagine the stranger kids things doing the things that the euphoria kids doing, we'd all be horrified to see that on the screen. In fact, there was this great movie with Laura Dern I watched years ago where with um, um, John Ritter's kid, Scott Ritter, where they play it. It's about her childhood relationship with an adult man. And they play it through the first time with a probably a 20-year-old cast in the role the way that they do, maybe an 18-year-old cast in the role. And then as she's excavating her memories, they play it back again with a child, um, not Laura Dern, it's not important, but with a child, um, a child actress, mm-hmm. like an actual like 12 year old or whatever age she was supposed to be. And as a viewer, it's horrifying because you realize the extent to which you had accepted the child's memory of this as like, a romantic, exciting encounter mm-hmm. because it was cast as an older child. And when the movie forces you to confront how often we, are, we, we, we accept these sorts of narratives in media because of the casting decisions that are made. So I don't know, that's a lot of words to say <laughs> I, I think that there's a bigger conversation to be had here about all of the ways in which children are sexualized, especially young girls, I think, are, who, mm-hmm. especially who mature quickly, are, are sexualized. And there's a little bit of Pollyanna-ishness about like, this particular stuffed bear ad that I think belies a bigger, more important conversation that needs to be had. Well, right. And
0: every time people say, talk about the fear of kids being exposed to, I guess, provocative or sexual content vis-a-vis something like this or something like, right, drag queens... It all seems a little silly to me because the complete availability everywhere on the line of pornography at the snap, touch of a button to anyone of any age at any time, the, by far the most common way that kids are exposed to sexual theory, it just dwarfs yeah. everything. Everything else is, if you think this is a problem, everything else is very insignificant compared yeah. to that, frankly. Yeah. So it seems weird to focus on it. Yeah, well... All right, tomorrow on Rising, The Washington Post, Lauren Gurley will join us and we'll get new updates on President Biden's push to stop the pending rail strike. So you won't want to miss that.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while well on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts.
0: I was going to do my Blue Steel impression because you brought up Zoolander, <laughs> but uh, maybe another time. Maybe
1: another time. Give it to us as we roll out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.